Hello, everybody, and welcome to History Revisited with James Lamont. This is my first ever episode, so I'd just like to thank everybody for checking this podcast out. And I'm going to give a basic rundown of what we do. We look at historical people and events and decisions from the perspective of the Catholic Church. We are going and revisiting history in the light of what the Catholic Church has to say about moral issues. And that that way we can decide what in history really was right and what was wrong. Today, we're going to go back to 44 BC in ancient Rome. Uh, On March 15th, 44 BC, the particular date we're going to be looking at, is the assassination of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the first ever Roman emperor. Rome had been a republic prior to this time. And the senators didn't like what he was doing to Rome. They didn't like that he was transforming Rome from a republic into an empire. So on March 15th, they rushed him during a Senate meeting with 60 daggers drawn, and there were 60 of them about, and they stabbed him to death. They were led by two senators named Marcus Brutus and Gaius Longinus. Now, before we can go into what the church has to say about all this, we need to understand what the generally accepted interpretation of this event was. Uh, The general interpretation that I've found, and especially if you go back and look at literature from the 1500s and the 1600s and earlier, the generally accepted view is that the senators were bad. They were murderers at best, traitors at worst. They killed their emperor. William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar definitely presents them as the villains in the story. Julius Caesar is a pathetic but innocent victim. In fact, it was Shakespeare's play that immortalized the famous line, et tu, Brute, which is you too, Brutus, in Latin which is what uh, Caesar says when uh, he sees that Marcus Brutus is one of the assassins because Brutus had been his friend earlier. So the senators are viewed as having betrayed him. Perhaps the starkest negative view put on by anyone is Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, which is a great work. It's often said to be the greatest work of literature in the history of mankind. If you haven't read it, I definitely suggest it. It's a big read, though. (laughs) But uh, it's about a man who goes through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And an interesting thing Dante did was he divided hell in his book into nine rings. The center ring was the ring of traitors. It was the worst place to be in hell. Traitors were considered by Dante to be the worst sinners. And It was just a frozen wasteland, even more unbearable to be in than most of hell. And different, depending on how bad of a traitor you were, you would be frozen to a different degree in ice. And the worst traitors were at the, and according to Dante then, the worst sinners were at the very center of hell, being perpetually chewed on by the devil. There were three people there that were being perpetually chewed on by the devil. One was Judas Iscariot the man who betrayed Jesus. Devon, or Dante was a devout Catholic, and that makes sense that I think that Iscariot was one of those three men. But the other two were Brutus and Longinus, the 
two leaders in Julius Caesar's assassination. So that shows just how bad they were viewed, that they would be put by somebody on the level of Judas Iscariot as one of the three worst humans to have ever lived. That's, that's not very flattering for our senators now, is it? Uh, one more final thing that about the perception between the perception of that event is that the senators are viewed as elites just trying to preserve their power. Oftentimes, Julius Caesar is often viewed as kind of a populist who is rising up for the people but was killed by the elitist senators who were part of the political establishment just trying to preserve their own power. Now, before we can really go into what was right about the situation from Catholic moral teaching, we have to go look at what happened, what led up to all this, what, were, what was the circumstance, what was the background. So we'll start with Julius Caesar himself. Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar was born on July 12th, 100 years before Christ. He was born in a noble family, so that he was part of the aristocracy of the Roman Empire. But his family was not a particularly powerful one as far as aristocrats went. His father died when he was 16, and he became head of the house at that age. So very early, at least by our standards, he was catapulted into adulthood at an early age. His uncle Gaius Marius started a civil war with a rival named Lucius Sulla. And Marius was... he. Uh, Caesar was kind of adopted by Marius after his father's death. So normally he would have been called upon to fight, but he managed to avoid fighting by becoming the high priest of Jupiter. Now, the high, just to explain this a little bit, the Romans had a very different system of government than, or different system of religion than we do in Catholicism. In Catholicism, we just have one God. That's all there is. If you're a priest, you're a priest. Well, in the Roman religion, there were like, 30 gods or something, and the highest god was Jupiter. He was analogous to the Greek god Zeus, if you know who he was supposed to be. Jupiter was the god of the sky, very powerful, sort of like the head god. So his Julius Caesar is the high priest of Jupiter in his mid to late teens, so he's the highest priest of the highest god in the Roman religion. That's a very prestigious role for someone as young as him to have. Solo won the Civil War, though. Solo was the rival of his uncle. Solo won the Civil War. He stripped Caesar of his position and his priesthood, but uh, further measures were stopped because, funny enough, Caesar's mother's family was an influential supporter of Sola. Pretty interesting that you've got his mother, who is apparently enemies with his uncle, so brother and sister-in-law not getting along very well, but that all worked out very well for Caesar because his mother's family managed to influence Sulla into not pursuing Caesar. Caesar still didn't want to hang out around Sulla, still didn't trust him, so he wanted to get far away. And this is where being stripped of his priesthood actually came in handy because and this is an instance where we can compare their religion to ours and realize how much smarter Catholicism is. Priests of the Roman, or the high priest of Jupiter at least, was not allowed to look at any horses, or touch any horses, sorry. not He wasn't allowed to touch any horses. He was not allowed to look at any armies or sleep more than one, or sleep any nights out of Rome. 
That sounds weird to us, but that was normal for them. Of course, in Catholicism, priests have been soldiers, they've ridden horses, they've even been guerrilla soldiers in some situations, such as the Cristero War in Mexico. So that shows you the difference between our more practical view of what priests should be able to do and the Roman religion's sort of weird rules. But being stripped of his priesthood meant that he could now be in the army because now he can look at armies and he can even ride horses. So he gets on a horse, he goes in the army, gets far away from Rome and far away from Sola. He serves with distinction on the frontiers of the Roman Republic. He wins the civic crown. That would be like the Medal of Honor or something for us. Very uh, prized military medal. He was a good soldier. He came back to Rome in 78 BC. Felt enough time had gone by that Sulla felt it was safe to go back to Rome now. He became a lawyer. He was known for his ruthless prosecution of corrupt people and this started building his man of the people populist image he's going out and rooting out all the corruption in all these high places also starts a reputation of being very ruthless after uh, being ransomed by pirates he was kidnapped and ransomed by them he ended up chasing them all down and killing them all later on around 70 bc he started a political career he served in various offices even head of the Roman state religion again in 63 BC, that was a very political role. They were elected by regular vote, similar to a politician. He, and all during this time, he's known as an outsider of the Roman government. He's not part of the establishment, so he's building up his populist man of the people type of image. He eventually became a soldier again, very popular among his men. He's a general now. He gave up the title of Imperator, which was a very special kind of general, to run for consul. Now, here I should explain how the Roman Republic worked. In America, we often like to think of ourselves as the first, the first republic, but we were truly just the first modern republic. In the ancient world, the idea that one person, like a monarch, shouldn't have all that power, that was a very common sentiment at that time. And the Roman Republic had a senate. That was its primary lawgivers, but it also had two consuls. To short it, to, in the shortest way I can put it, the co the combination of the consuls was basically like the presidency. It's almost like if you had two presidents and they have to agree on everything about something for it to get done. They have to agree on everything that gets done. So that so it's built as a way that one person doesn't have the, too much executive power. So he ran for consul, he won, and was elected in 59 BC. He had a lot of controversial things that he did. One of those things was he started redistributing public lands to the poor. This made the government establishment hate him, and also made the poor people love him. So he started building up his man-of-the-people populist image even more. By this time, he's definitely viewed by anyone who knows him as a populist political outsider who's come in and is against the establishment. After his consulship, he went back into the military, and this is where he served, this is where he won the most distinction, yet he, leading an army, conquered Gaul, which is modern-day France. This was a major feat, greatly expanded the size of the Roman Empire. This was a big deal. 
Now, as we go on, we come to 51 BC, Rome, the Roman Republic was on the brink of civil war. It was kind of collapsing, struggling financially. They had tried to expand towards the east, but it was a failed invasion. Um, Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great was his name in English, was elected the sole consul of the Roman Republic as an emergency measure. They figured that having two consuls wasn't enabling them to make the decisions that needed to be made in this in this harsh time. That would be like if we threw out one of the one of the houses, like if we threw out the Senate or the House of Representatives, because we figured it was making it more difficult to get things done. This is a big deal. This is striking a major blow to their Republican principles. They're willing to just have one executive to help make things get done faster, to help remedy their situation. Meanwhile, in Gaul, Caesar's doing great. He's very popular. Um, he's, see he's considering seeking a second consulship, though almost no one in the Senate wants him to run. Caesar's giving out money to his supporters and basically buying their loyalty. In fact, loyalty to him, not the Roman Republic. His soldiers identify themselves as Caesar's soldiers, not Rome's soldiers. If he were to attack Rome, they would follow him. Senate, the Senate says he's overstepping his boundaries. They wanted to prosecute him, and they then demanded that he gave up his army. Well, Caesar didn't really want to do that. He certainly was not open to giving up his army. In 49 BC, he crossed the Rubicon River towards Rome, which is where we get the term crossing the Rubicon, as in doing something that can't be undone. He crossed the Rubicon River to invade Rome. The Senate had basically no army, so Pompey and the senators just had to flee. He, he just came in, took power, occupied Rome. Pompey managed to rouse up an army and go and fight Caesar. It was a close battle, but Caesar came up on top and completely ended up destroying Pompey's army. So there was no army left for the Republic of Rome, just Caesar's army. So Caesar marched into Rome again, declared himself dictator so that he could become the sole consul, but then gave up his consul title because he realized he liked the dictator title better. And he started weakening the power of the Senate, making himself the most powerful person, changing Rome fundamentally from a republic to an empire. Now, the Senate, and he also started appointing senators as he chose, as he saw fit, those who supported him, which was not how that had been done in the past. The senators are watching this, and to help you understand what they're feeling, they see this as if we had a president, much like we would today if a president came in power and started weakening the power of Congress and of the Senate and of the Supreme Court and saying that he is the sole lawgiver, the supreme leader of a place and that everyone has to be subject to him. So if we had the American president doing that, we would be pretty much ready for a revolution. And that's what these senators are thinking. On March 15th, 44 B.C., Caesar is at a Roman Senate meeting. The senators rush and kill him, 60 of them, with daggers. Okay, now that we've gone through all that, what happened, the background behind it all, we need to talk about the moral issues here. The central question at stake here is whether or not 
tyrannicide is an acceptable action. Tyrannicide is the killing of a tyrant. And that's what the senators said they were doing. And I think that's fair to say that is what they were doing. Because Caesar was coming in, seizing all the power, turning Rome in from the republic it had been into a dictatorship. This would be like a president coming into America and turning our government from a republic to a dictatorship. And mind you, not an elected president. This would be a president who just charged in and blew everybody else away, similar to what Caesar did when he crossed the Rubicon. Now, there's no one doctrine. I looked at a, at Catholic teachings in the catechism. I couldn't find anything that was completely infallible, any infallible statements that tyrannicide is okay or not okay. So what I could find is that Catholics are required to obey the law when the law is just. But the senators didn't really have a just law. They had somebody who just came in and took over, so they couldn't really just sit there and let that happen. They had to stop them. Now, as far as killing the person who's taking over, this has... There are really a lot of different opinions I found on this. I went with... I'm going to use the opinions of St. Thomas Aquinas because that was a name I recognized. St. Thomas Aquinas is sometimes referred to as one of the great fathers of church moral theology. He was a very prestigious theologian and philosopher back in the medieval times. He was a lot of what's currently in the catechism has come from some of his writings. Very famous Catholic priest and very devout Catholic in the medieval times, and so, and a very well-known saint. So I think he's someone that I, I am willing to trust on this sort of thing. And St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, and I quote, He who kills a tyrant to free his country is praised and rewarded. Aquinas believed that killing a, a bad leader was something that was necessary in some cases to ensure the country's freedom. And... Since St. Thomas Aquinas believes this, I would say this is definitely a valid opinion within church teaching. In fact, it, I would say it's the opinion I found of them all that bears the most weight. He also separated between tyrants by abuse of power, as in people who legitimately have power but abuse that power, and tyrants by usurpation, people who don't legitimately have power but come in and just take over. Who don't actually have any moral authority. And Julius Caesar fits into the second kind because he wasn't elected consul. He wasn't the lawful ruler of Rome. He just came in and took over. So according to Aquinas's theology or philosophy, it is okay to kill Julius Caesar. But we can't just go off this. There's also rules on violence in general. In Catholic Church teaching, and this is in the Catechism, violence is only to be used when there is no other option. And peaceful options have to have been tried if they, if, if they could be tried. Now, what, was there any option, any peaceful option here? Some people might say yes, because there were 60 senators and one Caesar. But the reality is it's not that simple. Even if they had just tackled Caesar, say, and imprisoned him, 
Well, remember that his army is loyal to him, not to the Roman government. So, and it's really the only big army in the area. So if they captured Caesar, well, then the army would come and kill all the senators, free Caesar, and we'd be just back to square one, except with no senators who might be able to stop him. So it, I, think it is, I think it's fair to say they were going with their only option. And they did tell, uh, they did tell Caesar that, that he didn't have the authority to do what he was doing before he crossed the Rubicon, but Caesar decided to cross it, so peaceful options had already been tried. Julius Caesar was indeed a tyrant by usurpation. He didn't have the moral authority he claimed to have because he wasn't the rightful ruler of Rome. He was not elected. He was not an elected official. He had been in his past, but he was not one anymore. So he didn't have the right, the legal right to do what he was doing. So even if someone, even if you may think there was possibly another way they could have handled the situation better, they're not the horrible treacherous murderer people that Dante Alighieri and William Shakespeare have made them out to be in the minds of the masses. I think in gen I think that this is a case where we can look at these people and say they believe they were fighting for a tyrant, they were fighting for freedom, this was something worth dying for to them. And Caesar was destroying the Republican ideals of the Roman Republic and creating a monarchy. And they tried to put a stop to it. I think this is a situation where we can look at history and say, the people who've done history before us were wrong, and it's good that we took this time to re revisit history. Now, I would like to have a word on populists and men of the people. A reason many, of the pe many people have positive opinions of Julius Caesar is because he was a populist. He identified himself with the common man, and he was going up and fighting the political establishment. We often like to sympathize with those who fight against the establishment, and we often like to not sympathize with the establishment. And lots of the time, that's fine. Lots of the time, the establishment is wrong, and po the populist sentiment is right. But that's not always the case. There are many examples throughout history where the populists were wrong. One instance would be the French Revolution, was a populist movement created by the common people of France to overthrow the monarchy. Overthrowing the monarchy itself wasn't so much of a problem, but they had they were so against the elites that they would go out and start uh, cutting the heads off rich people. And that's obviously wrong. That is a horrible and sick ideology to have, that for the poor people's gain, you need to kill all the rich people. This is... Also, I should also mention that the French Revolution was very anti-Catholic. Another example uh, of an even worse government was the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, where the communists in Russia overthrew a democratic government and started oppressing anyone who disagreed with the government in charge. Communism was supposed to be the ultimate populist dream. It was going to remove all private property so that all the wealth that the rich had would be able to be redistributed so the poor would share equally. It was supposed to be the poor, the poor man's dream. But that it was still a horrible government, despite being populist and for the people, supposedly. It was the, it was the regime that caused the biggest loss of human life ever. 
Um, a quick run on the numbers. Chairman Mao, the communist leader in China, saw uh, basically was responsible for the death of over 70 million Chinamen. And Joseph Stalin, the communist leader of the Soviet Union in Russia, was responsible for the death of 20 million people. In fact, more people died under communism than any other regime in the world. Also, um, perhaps an even more famous villain that uh, we good people have fought over the last century would be Nazism. Uh, the, the, Nazis part, the Nazi party's full name was National Socialist German Workers' Party. It was a populist movement. It was led by, or mostly led, by common working-class Germans. It was very populist in nature. It was not an elite movement. And it was also about rising up against the elites who had a democratic government. So you see there populists in support of a dictatorship rising up against a supposedly elite democracy. We see a parallel between that and what Julius Caesar was doing. So just remember that while we often like to sympathize with populists, some of the worst regimes in the history of mankind have been populist regimes. Just a reminder on that. And that's all I have to say about the assassination of Julius Caesar. Please remember that I'm not an expert. This is just what I found on church teaching combined with some of my own opinions. I, I'm not perfect, so if you have any problem, any serious, if you see anything I've said that you think might be a, uh, a problem, theologically speaking, you think I got something wrong, and you have a more reliable source like a priest or somebody, um, then trust that source over me because I'm, I'm not perfect. And uh, I hope you all have a good day. Thank you for checking this podcast out. I hope to see you all again on History Revisited.